Morning, everyone, and at the end of a very busy and good week, welcome to the culture where we talk about the things that really matter. And we're in the fourth of five albums you must listen to. We've come to one of my favorites, The Zombies, Odyssey and Oracle, which was produced as a fascinating backstory that we're going to talk about. It was recorded in June to August 1967, the summer of love, my birth. Uh, by the way, June 1967, but the Zombies worked on Odyssey and Oracle June 1967 um, to August. It wasn't released until April 1968 by CBS Records. And if Mr. Tambourine Man, which was last week's album, and by the way, there's been a huge response to albums you must listen to, which really makes me happy after we've done such big numbers over Raymond Chandler and Ernest Hemingway. We're going to do a final album she must listen to beyond, beyond before we move in the culture onto the movies and then back to literature. And we'll probably do some painting in there as well because these are taking off. I think there's a thirst among the community to talk about things that really matter. So we will always do a culture once a week, wherever I am. Um, if Mr. Tambourine Man, which was did even better than Marvin Gaye and Joni Mitchell um, in terms of numbers from the community, uh, if Mr. Tambourine Man was maybe the best debut album ever made, Odyssey and Oracle is probably the best final album, the final last hurrah of the zombies, a statement of what they were about, and in an odd and quirky triumph, which befitted an odd and quirky band. Odyssey and Oracle was only the second album made by the zombies, their first album, uh, Begin Here came out at the end of 1964. They were a British band, so they rode the wave of the Beatles and the British Invasion, and they experienced some success with that first album. Uh, She's Not There was a bona fide hit on both sides of the ocean. Tell Her No did very well, and the album did fine, and the Zombies toured off that album for a number of years and worked very hard at their craft, and that's the thing about the Zombies. They weren't uh, it wasn't a fluke. These were serious musicians. These were serious middle-class English boys, and indeed that was part of their problem. They didn't fit the bad boy image of the Rolling Stones, the working-class image that uh, was true of Keith Richards and was put on by Mick Jagger. They didn't fit that tough working-class image of bands like the Stones or the Animals from Newcastle, and they didn't fit the cute Britpop image of the Beatles or the Hollies. Uh, some of the other bands, Manfred Mann uh, from the Invasion at the time. They were they were neither. As somebody wrote in one of the reviews I read, they looked like a, a college bowl academic team. They looked like college kids. Very uncool with their thick glasses, which are now trendy, ironically. Um, and, and they were well-dressed, well-spoken, hardworking musicians who'd met at choir practice in high school in St. Albans, where they came from. And that choir practice is a key to their success because they were to sing beautifully uh, these three or four part harmonies that characterize the zombies sound. And there they are a bit like the birds, that these complicated harmonic patterns that come out of the mid 60s with bands like the birds, um, Arthur Lee and Love, one of my absolute favorite bands and forever changes. Um, you think of bands like Brian Wilson and what he did with Pet Sounds these complicated harmonic parts. Uh, the zombies fit very comfortably into that, so they didn't have the look. They didn't have anybody in the band like Michael Clark who looked like Brian Jones and the Birds. 
They looked like they were in an academic quiz team, but boy, were they good. And they'd been playing and singing these complicated harmonic parts together since the church choir in St. Albans. And it showed that they could really sing and they'd really mastered their craft. But they didn't have the look, and so it took a long time for them to get a second album. And indeed, by the time they made Odyssey and Oracle, they were, they'd were been dropped by Decca Records, which had done their first album, and they financed in desperation Odyssey and Oracle on their own. So this is desperation now. The gigs have dried up because the hits have dried up. You can't tour if you don't have new get new hits. And the Zombies, despite doing an awful lot of good work and being brilliant musicians, uh, the touring had dried up, and so they had reached the end of the road, and they were forced to finance this album, Odyssey and Oracle, uh, that they made at Abbey Road Studios. So they were in they were in good company in June 1967. Another small band called the Beatles was working in Abbey Road. So this was this was interesting that they they cross pollinated a little bit with the great Beatles who were working at the time on Sgt. Pepper while they were working on Odyssey and Oracle. And it, too, is a concept album, that it follows really a perception of what's going on in the world, and one song leads thematically to the other. So there's a lot of high intellectual content here um, in the album. And it's one of those great hits. I mean, a bit like Arthur Lee and Love and Forever Changes, I absolutely love records that are beautiful and are commercially shunned, but are hidden treasures that you find along the way. When I was a kid in Rocky River, Ohio, we, we still played vinyl records. And a really good friend of mine, Lara, we would go in the basement, four of us, and play these records all the time. And we loved 60s music for some reason. We all, we all gravitated to that. And Lara had a copy of, of Odyssey and Oracle that we played. And I played this thing until the grooves didn't work anymore, that the album was just that good. And nobody knew about it, and so I became fascinated by Odyssey and Oracle. And what happened to these guys, and how can they do such great work? And nobody seems to care. They're sort of the Vincent Van Gogh of pop music in the 60s. They do these pretty pictures, and no one buys them. And I couldn't figure out why in either case that was. And so Odyssey and Oracle, financed by the zombies themselves, a desperate effort to revive their career. It's only their second album. The first is made in late 1964. We're now in 1967, and they're in Abbey Road Studios with the Beatles, having been dropped by Decca Records, um, and so they finance this on their own. Well, the album, they worked very, very quickly because, as those of us who've had student loans know, you have to work very, very quickly. I remember for grad school convincing my father to let me do my Ph.D. at St. Andrews, but it only worked if I got out of there as fast as I could and didn't enjoy the beautiful amenities of St. Andrews and playing golf every day, um, which I did. But there's nothing like a financial gun to your head. And so Odyssey and Oracle, again, was made very quickly. Um, the lion's share of the work, though it took longer into the autumn of 67, the lion's share of the work was done in these two to three months of the summer because they had to. But initially, it didn't work either. The first two singles in the album were released to critical and commercial utter indifference. And so with everything drying up, with, the, with this album that they put their heart and soul in not working, the zombies quietly dissolve in December 1967. And then a very odd thing happens. An American, uh, quite famous and good American record producer from CBS Records, Al Cooper, who'd done work with Bob Dylan, 
among other people, and, and was one of the great session musicians of his time and knew a good thing when he saw it. Not only was he a musician, he was a producer for CBS, and he heard Odyssey and Oracle on one of his trips to London, absolutely loved it, came back to America, prodded and nagged CBS to issue it on a minor subsidiary of their own in the United States, and lo and behold, they issue as a third single, Time of the Season, and it becomes a huge million-selling hit in the United States. Unfortunately for the zombies, they don't exist anymore at this point, and so they have a million-selling record and no band. And so, quite fascinatingly, a series of, of, of unscrupulous record producers concocted fake zombies bands. There were several of them in the late 60s, which toured and played part of the record and always time of the season to make money. But this wasn't the original lineup. Again, these guys met each other at St. Albans in England in high school. Uh, Colin Blundstone is the brilliant lead singer of, of the zombies. And Colin Blundstone's voice has influenced all kinds of rock music since. That when you hear it, you'll never forget it. He has an utterly unique voice. Paul Weller, huge fan of the zombies of the jam and a guy who is cool uh, found this uncool band very cool and he and he described their music as autumnal it's in the minor key determinedly in the minor key very little is upbeat um, it's thoughtful it's thoughtful creative interesting music and Colin Blundstone's voice really characterizes this autumnal quality of the zombies and it's been copied time and time again but when you hear him sing She's Not There, and sing the main riff in there. It is extraordinary. But if you listen to the whole of the Zombies catalog, very short again, only some singles, some outtakes in these two records, his voice just is absolutely mesmerizing. I was shaving the other day listening to this in preparation for our chat, and the hairs still stand up on the back of my head, and I've probably heard Colin Blundstone literally a thousand times now. But Blundstone and, and his partner Rod Argent who was the kind of intellectual leader of the band, did most of the writing, was the outgoing gregarious keyboard player. Blunston had the voice. Argent was the keyboard player, which really characterizes the zombie sound. The only other keyboard player of a band that you really sticks out in your mind in the 60s is, of course, Ray Manzarek of The Doors. Um, and in both cases, this gave the music a very different quality. There's this kind of carnivalesque quality to both the Doors and the Zombies that works. And Arjun provides that with his virtuoso playing, his great arranging and writing. The other great advantage of Odyssey and Oracle is that the Zombies couldn't afford a producer, and so they did it on their own. And they turned out, again, having an intellectual background, to be pretty darn good at it. And arranging and producing is really the high priesthood of thinking in rock and roll. And you have uh, Chris White, who was the bass player and his friend Rod Argent, the keyboardist doing much of the producing. Cullen Blundstone was the voice. Paul Atkins uh, played guitar. And Hugh Grundy was, was, the, was the drum player. Atkinson, pardon me, was the guitar player. Hugh Grundy was the drummer. But really, the, the, the core of the band is Chris White on bass and helping produce and arrange. Rod Argent, the keyboard player. Um, and, and songwriter, also helping White with the arrangements, producing, and then Colin Blundstone, this incredible voice that's quite unique in rock. And because they couldn't hire a producer, they did it themselves. And, and I creatively, this is interesting. I've written books where I've asked for a whole bunch of opinions of my friends that, what do you think of this, and should I try this? Um, and that can work. I, I did To Dare More Boldly that way. 
Um, I took in a lot of outside opinions. I filtered through them. Weirdly enough, with The Last Best Hope, I absolutely didn't want to do that. I thought about doing it, and it, every single friend of mine who was sending me very well-intentioned comments about what I wanted to do, and I was getting annoyed. And I realized I was getting annoyed not at my friends, who are great and always supportive of my writing and my work. I'm really lucky. Um, my father said about me once uh, when I was a younger man, it isn't true now that I found Sarah, but before Sarah, my father uttered a very pro prophetic statement. He said, John, you're a mess with girls, but you have a talent for friendship. And I've been lucky in my life to have really good, loyal friends who are great fun, add a huge amount to my existence. I learn an awful lot from, think, think from, laugh with, um, but are really, really good about supporting my work, and I'm grateful to them all. Shout out to all of you listening now. But this was one I didn't want their input. I didn't know why. I absolutely knew what I wanted to do. I absolutely knew, knew at 15 times through how to do it. I didn't want any outside input. I wanted it to be purely me, purely what I thought. And that's what the zombies did with Odyssey and Oracle. Uh, they managed somehow to make a record that was just uniquely theirs. And this lack of outside influences can either lead to a record falling off a cliff or art falling off a cliff, or it can be the best stuff that you do because you know exactly what you want to do. And financially, with a gun to your head, the zombies were lucky for this because this lack of an outside producer let Rod Argent and Chris White weave their magic with Colin Blundstone's voice. Um, three, three songs really stand out in it. And one of the great things about the zombies is their lyrical wit. I mean, the cover of the record is one of the great pieces of psychedelia ever. It's one of the brightest album covers you'll ever see. Purples and reds and yellows and vibrant. But really, it's not all that psychedelic other than the organ playing of Argent being every bit as good as Manzarek and maybe even better. And Manzarek was a virtuoso. But for all the psychedelia kind of kind of candy coating, beneath it all, this really isn't a psychedelic record. It is a concept album, but it's less psychedelic. You have these ornate choruses, Argent's organ playing stand out, and then this hard rock bass of Paul Atkinson on drums and uh, Chris White on bass, Hugh Grundy on drums, Atkinson on guitar, White on bass, and Blundstone, this very tight band. Because in addition to liking psychedelia, the zombies love jazz. And there's this jazz-infused quality to the music. They absolutely know how to play. And together, there's this riffing jazz quality, similar to speaking, without notes, that really is part of it. So there's a psychedelic um, kind of su surface level. But as you dig deeper, what you find in Odyssey and Oracle are innate choruses Argent's masterful organ playing in this hard rock bass of Grundy on drums, White on bass, and Atkinson on guitar. Um, it does resemble really indie pop uh, more than psychedelia, uh, which is really interesting, along with really adventurous lyrics and daring arrangement, arranging that's every bit as good as some of the work done by people like Brian Wilson of Pet Sounds, uh, John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, and these vibrant three or four part harmonies, it's bright beyond belief. It's shiny, but beneath it, there's this minor key autumnal depth to the music, which is extraordinary. The three songs that I call out are the first song, again, for their lyrical adventurousness and wit, which is called Care of Cell 44, which at first seems to be quite a bright, happy British invasion pop upbeat song. One of the few upbeat songs on the record but actually, it's a song about a guy who's waiting for his girlfriend to get out of jail. 
which is one of the funniest things. When the when you begin the lyrics begin to dawn on you, it's incredibly funny and witty. And very few bands are you know dare to be funny. And the zombies were funny here with Care of Cells 44, a seemingly Brit invasion song that's utterly subversive because in the end it's about a guy waiting for his girlfriend to get out of prison. But on the other end of the spectrum, in the same record, you have The Butcher's Tale, Chris White's take on 1914, on the opening of World War I, whereas Lawrence of Arabia, one of my guys, I read a biography I'm still fond of about Lawrence, and he said World War I was an example of lions led by donkeys. And Butcher's Tale fits into this, that these men are led to the slaughter. It's hard to think of a bleaker record. On the song, Argent plays an old Victorian organ befitting the times when Edwardian England saw the flower of it, the flower of England die. I remember at St. Andrews, I would walk by the war dead list one day and, and every day to go teach um, as I was a student teacher. And as I would walk by, it suddenly dawned on me that everybody died the same day. And I asked one of the tutors what happened. And he said, well, they grouped all the St. Andrews students together which is one of the elite universities of the UK, and they all died growing over the top at the Battle of the Somme. The flower of England was literally wiped out in one day, and that has stuck with me. And I always bowed to the war dead list as I'd go to teach. And Butcher's Tale really you know, does homage to these guys, to what happened to them, and to the futility of war, which did tie into Vietnam, which was going on at the time. It's historical and then political. So we go from a farce like Care of Cell 44 to a song that uses history to critique Vietnam, which is Butcher's Tale, 1914, and then Time of the Season, the end of the end, the last song on the zombie's last record, which becomes a million-selling hit. And when you hear it, you know why immediately. You have the spooky kind of drumming of Grundy. You have Argent going nuts on the keyboards. And then you have the riff of Colin Blundstone, never to be forgotten. If ever a song deserved to hit it, it was time of the season, which ironically, when they were doing it, they had run out of money and the first couple singles hadn't worked. And so it was getting fractious with the zombies as they met failure after failure. And Colin Bloomstone famously hated time of the season, even though it was to make him famous. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the Coen brothers inside Lewin Davis that, you know, you can be awfully good and not make it. Um, and there's a tragedy in that. And that haunts every good artist. I, in, in, in my wilderness years, I kept saying to people, I don't want to be Van Gogh. I don't want to be some hidden treasure people discover. And thank God the business took off because that's the fear of every, every decent artist who's not making it. And Blundstone had had it by the time of time of the season and said to Arjun, who'd written it, look, I don't want to sing it. If you want to sing it, go ahead. And finally had to be talked into singing what became really his great vocal performance and is well worth it. So you have you couldn't have a more varied three. Care of Cell 44, um, which is a brilliant farce playing off of Beatlemania and the zombies' ironic success at the end of it. Butcher's Tale, which is about lions being led by donkeys using the history of World War I as a critique of Vietnam. And then the brilliant time of the season, which is maybe the one psychedelic song on the whole album, seemingly covered in psychedelia. Um, you might notice in, in my spelling of Odyssey that I spell it incorrectly, as it was spelled incorrectly on the record. And the reason for this was that this great album cover, uh, the designer, Terry Quirk, who was a friend of Chris White's, uh, misspelled it, and they didn't have the money to fix it. 
And so Odyssey is misspelled on purpose because Terry Quirk, who designed this magnificent album cover, simply misspelled it and the zombies didn't have the cash to fix it. I think that is a, the ultimate sign of, of, of a treasured classic, an unsung classic. They don't even have the money to fix the spelling. So it, it's now misspelled and it's become famous that way. Again, kudos to Al Cooper, Dylan's bandmate, CBS staff record producer for saving the album, bringing it to America, having time of the season hit. The Zombies, as I said, because they broke up, had never performed it on stage. There have been fake versions of the Zombies, but never them as a whole. However, on the 40th anniversary, and I commend you to go on YouTube, you can find a full recording of some very old but very proud men in March 2008 playing on the 40th anniversary of Odyssey and Oracle. And finally, the four surviving zombies play three sold-out shows in London to critical and commercial acclaim. The, sh the shows at Shepherd's Bush are sold out. Uh, the album is reevaluated. And for the first time, the zombies actually play their magical songs from the late 60s. And to watch these older men brilliantly still, again, they were great musicians, play Odyssey and Oracle is a moving treat that I commend you to do. If the first, if last week's album, Mr. Tambourine Man, again, is the greatest debut album, I would argue the Zombies Odyssey and Oracle, for all its quirks and all its coincidences, is the best final world word last album ever made. And I commend you to listen to it today, as I certainly will. Go onto YouTube and see the March 2008 40th anniversary performances. You will not be wasting your time. Thanks very much. I uh, hope you enjoyed this one. The Culture, albums you must listen to, The Zombies, brilliant and breathtakingly underrated Odyssey and Oracle. Have a great weekend, and we will see you next week. Take care.